0: You guys almost ready back there? Okay. Hey, okay, cool. We're ready. Come on. Get ready. All right. One, two, three, four. All out the holly. Put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking. I may be rushing. Well, Merry Christmas. It's good to see you. Good-looking bunch of people you are. Love being with you. Um, can you believe it's December already? It's incredible. I, I, you know, I've heard once that life is a little bit like a roll of toilet paper. It just goes faster the more you get out of it, you know, the more you end it. Um, it's just amazing that we're already in December. It seems like it was just Halloween and Thanksgiving. Um, I have a question for you. You're going to hear this more than once here. How many of you have already begun your Christmas shopping? Can I see your hands? Very good, you're way early. How many, anybody in here already finished with your Christmas shopping? Oh my goodness, you guys just make us sick. I want you to know that. Just sick, way too organized. Where's the spontaneity? Um, most of you know that um, every year in December, Brad and I put our heads together and we, we try to come up with a series that will just really get us ready to celebrate Christmas in its true essence. And this year, Brad came up with a great idea. Um, we're doing a series called Don't Miss Christmas. And what we're going to do is we're going to trail back to the original Christmas story, the one that took place in Bethlehem, and we're going to look at several of the people in that story that completely missed what happened. There were numbers that got it, shepherds and wise men and so forth, but there were a few people that absolutely missed what was happening right in front of their eyes. And then we're going to try to apply and see if any of that is still going on today. So I've been assigned the very first topic, Don't Miss Christmas Due to Fear. And I'm going to begin with a kind of a weird thing, um, which shouldn't surprise you. Um, For you that are seasoned veterans of life, you probably remember the name way back in the 1970s that we heard often. Do you remember the name Howard Hughes? Remember this guy? Howard Hughes, in case you're a young whippersnapper, Howard Hughes was an eccentric, bizarre, business tycoon, movie maker, aviator who toward the end of his life just started doing some very weird things. In fact, he grew up through most of his life, childhood and adulthood, with incredible fears over his health and his wealth. In fact, toward the end of his life, he was so fearful and and had phobias about his health that he used to he used to just lie down naked in a hotel room bed, thinking that was the only germ-free environment he could find. Oh boy, little did he know. Um, wow. Um, he would, he would wear tissue boxes on his feet for his shoes to keep them clean, and he wouldn't touch doorknobs, and, and, uh, and to be honest with you, he, he actually would burn his clothes at the end of the day if he thought he was around anybody that might have an illness. He just had phobias about his health, but he also had fears about his wealth. He was an extremely rich man. He was a billionaire with a B, not an M, and, uh, and he had so much money, he started stashing it in weird places. He wasn't listening to his financial advisors that had wisdom, and when he died, he died without a will, which left a whole bunch of people just messing around on who was going to get the money he left behind. But my point is this. Howard Hughes was a very smart man, but he was a smart man that did a lot of dumb things because of the fears that somehow clouded his objectivity. He was a fearful man. And the fear directed much of his behavior. Let me ask you a question. Even though you don't have phobias like that, at least I hope you don't. Do any of you in this room ever have fears that drive your behavior? Where it's not wisdom, it's not the Bible, it's not friends. It's a fear that pushes you or nudges you. And you start doing, even though you're a smart person, you start doing dumb things. I believe... That our eyes being open to this truth we're gonna talk about today could completely change not only the way we experience holidays, but life itself. I love the cute story of the little boy whose dog just had a litter of puppies. So on the second day, he had a big box of those puppies out on the sidewalk. He was gonna sell them all. In fact, he had a big sign, puppies, $5. Well, a neighbor walked by and saw the box full of puppies and he said, $5, that's a pretty good deal. Little boy said, yep, you wanna buy one? He said, well, not today, but I'll see you later. The next day, the neighbor man walked by and there was the box full of puppies. Not one of them had sold. Only now the sign said, puppies, $15. The guy goes, son, did you sell any puppies? He said, not one. He said, well, why'd you raise your price? You should drop the price if you're not selling them. He said, oh no, that's where you're wrong. Today, the puppy's eyes are open and puppies are way more valuable with their eyes open. (laughs) Can I tell you something? God absolutely loves you, but you're way more valuable to his purposes with your eyes open. So I wanna open our eyes to this simple truth and to one particular character today that we're gonna study like we've never studied him before. He's, he's a guy that's part of the Christmas story, but he's usually one of those sidebars, those best supporting actors, rather than the main star. He's gonna be the star of the show today. I want you to grab your Bibles if you have them, and I'd like you to open them up to the book of Matthew, chapter two. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. We're gonna put this scripture up on the screen so you can read it with me as I read. But in Matthew chapter 2, we start seeing the story of Herod, the king of Israel. You remember Herod's name, don't you? Herod was the king of the nation of Israel during the time of the birth of Jesus. He was a very eccentric man. In fact, he was a little bit like Howard Hughes. He had lots of fears. He was very insecure. He was placed in office by the Roman Empire. In fact, I think they put him in place because they figured they pretty much had a puppet in Herod. He would do whatever he told them, as long as he could keep his power, his money, his throne. But Herod's insecurities started driving him to do some very bizarre things. And when he hears news of the birth of this baby, this Jesus thing, he wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So read with me Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start reading with verse 1, and we'll read all the way down to verse verse 8. Here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judah, During the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's um, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may t- my two may go and worship him. Now, I think it's interesting that the very first word that Matthew uses to describe Herod's response to the announcement about Jesus, you know, the peace on earth, goodwill toward men, that was good news for most everybody else that heard it, was he was troubled. He was disturbed. This man was a fearful man, although he had more than most people around him five, ten times more. He was just insecure about it all. And I'm going to suggest to you today that there's a sequence of stages he goes through as his fear gets an absolute grip on him along the way. Let's look at these stages in just five or six minutes. I'm going to rattle them off rather rapidly, but I want you to see if you can find you, yourself, in this list and see if you kind of do the same things. Maybe not quite as bizarre, but you do some of the same internal moves that he did. Stage one. The first step along the way is he discovers. He hears the news. This Messiah is being born. Now, he's a Jewish king, so he's heard about this Messiah thing, but he's really, really troubled by this. And like us, he hears data that might just affect his his future, his family, his income, his job, his position, his fame. And so he's on alert. Instead of just assuming, man, God's at work. This is good news. He might even save us from the Roman Empire. Maybe better. This discovery leads him to troublesome, disturbing fears. In fact, that's stage two. He fears. His first emotion, I repeat, the first emotion that Herod experiences is the emotion of fear. Now, I believe fear is the mother of all emotions. It's a negative one. But it's the one I think people experience more than any other on planet Earth. In fact, I find it rather interesting that 365 times in the Bible, the words fear not appear. 365 times, which means once a day, every day, God's word to you is don't fear. But but we do, don't we? In fact, if you trot with me way back to the book of Genesis, the very first emotion that Adam and Eve experienced after they fall into sin and eat the forbidden fruit was fear. Finish this verse for me. God comes down to the garden and says, "Adam, where are you?" Adam says, "Lord, I heard your voice in the garden, and I hid, for I was I was afraid." He'd never been afraid of God before. In fact, God was someone he ran to, not from. What was up with this now? Well, now fear is driving his behavior. For some reason, we have an innate I don't know, surfacing or an emergence of this emotion that makes us trouble. It's almost like we're trying to hold on for dear life, to our safety, our, 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 our money, or anything that makes us okay. We think we've got to seize control, and that's what Herod does. Instead of receiving this news, this marvelous news, he's afraid of what he might lose, which leads us to stage three. Fear eventually led him to become desperate, to desperate measures. At first, fears are just tiny. They're just little things like, oh, maybe, ooh, I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong there. But then eventually, if you let, am I not right about this? If you let your fears linger, they turn into big things. Even the tiniest thing. Huge. In fact, I purposely have a prop on the table here. Not the bottle of water. That's for me to drink. But this glass of water. This glass of water, which is just a little bit more than halfway full, contains enough water that if if you see it for what it is, you can see right through it. It's a transparent liquid. But turned into a mist or a fog, this amount of water can fog up four city blocks and make it hard for you to see, to drive. Is that not a picture of fear? Fear fogs our ability to see things clearly and think objectively. And even though it's just a little bit, in fact, you can see right through it if you can see for what it is, but turned into a a mist. It's just, ah, can't see, can't see. And even though it's a straight road, you should be able to make it. We think it's a curvy road. It's probably got speed bumps. There's maybe a rock in the road. I might die. I mean, is that not us? Pretty soon, it's just this huge thing. And we start doing desperate things in response, which leads us to the next step or station. He begins to react in secret. Did you notice the adverb that Matthew uses? He called the Magi back to him secretly. Now, there's nothing innately wrong with calling him back and back secretly. That's not a that's not robbing a bank or committing murder. But when you do something secret, shouldn't that signal you that something's wrong? When you have to hide something, what's, Why does he have to act in secret? Is he afraid that someone's seeing his own fear? Is he afraid of someone maybe seeing his response and thinking it's wrong? Is he afraid of others might knowing something that he doesn't know? What's, why act in secret? In fact, let me just illustrate my point to you. How many of you in this room today are parents? Parents, raise your hand real quick, okay? Am I not right? When your children start doing something in secret, you immediately are alerted, aren't you? What are you hiding? What are you hiding? True? It's just because we, it's a human nature thing. Why can't you do it out in the open? If it's okay, why can't you do it out in the open? Well, Herod's feeling and acting. On stuff that's just not good. Which leads us to the next station along the way. He attempts to, or he longs... ...to control the consequences. Now, ladies, you can listen in. But men, can I talk to you just real quick? Men, this is a predisposition that most of us have. Not all. Maybe you're immune from this. But most men don't expect a perfect life. But our number one striving when we see something go wrong... ...is to attempt to control the outcomes... We want to control the consequences, like David in his sin with Bathsheba. We want to let's, let's fix things up. I won't make it right, but I will fix things up. We try to control the outcomes of the consequences, the bad stuff that could happen for our bad behavior, and that's what the, that's what King Herod does. He's now, he's now doing something he he probably would have never predicted he would do earlier. I love what Rollo May said. Uh, Rollo May is a psychologist, and he was the one that first said the statement, man is the strangest of creatures. He's the only one who runs faster when he has lost his way. Hmm. This leads to the next stage or station that Herod goes through. He employs deception. You heard, did you not, what he said to the Magi? He said, you go to Bethlehem, gather all the data, please. In fact, write it down. Come back to me, tell it to me, for I too may go and worship him. You and I both know Herod had no intentions of going to worship Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. He wants to assassinate him. He later ends up killing all the boys under two years old in that vicinity because he's so, he so fears being displaced from his rightful leadership position. And all I'm saying is, I've done this before, not on a big scale, but on a small scale. I'm now deceiving. It's white lies, just little white lies. I'll suggest something, or maybe I won't say something that I should have said. But somehow I leave this deceptive trail behind me, leaving people to believe one thing that just isn't true. That's exactly what Herod does. And then eventually, next stage, he's beaten at his own game. This is a pattern I want you to see, and I'm going to elaborate on it in just a minute. But Herod, this deceiver, this guy who tricks people to keep his power and position, is now beaten at his own game. A verse we didn't read yet, but I want to read with you right now, is found in verse 16. As the story goes on, we actually trail the Magi, not Herod. The Magi eventually go to find Jesus, and they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You remember the story. And they worship and they celebrate the birth of this baby. But right afterwards, if you remember, they have a dream. God gives them a dream and says, don't go back to Herod. He's he's, he's going to try to kill this baby. Go back home another way. And so even though they've agreed to go back to Herod, they don't go. And they go back another way. And Herod never gets what he wants. He's beaten at his own game. In fact, look at verse 16. It reads... When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. The final stage in this journey is in his blindness. He does very bizarre and outlandish things, things that I would guess five years earlier he would have never ever predicted he would do. But fear gets us to do stuff that's illogical, irrational, even dumb. Now, maybe not you, but you at least know somebody that you've thought to yourself, how could such a smart person do such a dumb thing? We've all said that before because it's common. Has nothing to do with our IQ. Has a lot to do with our EQ. How are emotions? Are they steady? Are they stable? Are we fearful, insecure, jealous, envious? What's pushing us? to behave. And listen, when it's pushing us, is it a glass of water that turns into a fog? And now we can't even think straight, especially at holiday time. Now, I know this is a huge story. And in fact, I don't think any of us would do anything quite as atrocious as as what Herod did here. But do you have quiet fears that maybe lurk, especially at holiday time? The family coming in, or you going to the family. There's this big crowd of people, kind of bizarre people, Okay, that you don't see but once a year and, ugh, ah, I don't know. I don't. Maybe it just, it breeds emotions that are not healthy. And it clouds you from seeing God at work in that time. I mentioned earlier this pattern that Herod goes through. It's a pattern we see all throughout human history. Hang with me. Forget Christmas for just a minute. This is something that we, you just need to know as a human principle. All through history, and certainly through biblical history, we see this cycle that I just described, where someone becomes fearful that leads to this step and that step and this step and that step, and eventually it unfolds because God tries to get us to the end of ourselves. Think back to the book of Genesis for just a minute. Do you remember the character in Genesis named Jacob? Remember hearing Jacob's name? Jacob was, a set of, was one of a set of twins. Esau was his brother. They were the sons of Isaac. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, Jacob, as the one that came out of the womb just moments after his brother, was still the second-born son. Even though it was a twin set, he was the second-born. So he didn't get all the the, the wonderful privileges that generally went with the first-born son, like the birthright, which every Jewish boy wanted, and the blessing, which every Jewish boy wanted from his father. Well, Jacob doesn't get it. And he spends most of his young adult years scraping and clawing and scratching and striving to get what he thinks he should have gotten. Sound familiar? I'm going to just make it happen. And so he cons his brother out of the birthright, out in the field one day, and he dupes his dad out of giving him the blessing because he's not seeing real well that day. And the point is, he ticks off his brother and his father and has to run away. Well, where does he run? Do you remember where he runs? He runs. He runs to his uncle Laban's house, who happens to be a bigger deceiver than he is. Seriously. If you read the story, it's quite a... In fact, read your Bible. This is better than a TV show. He Seriously, it is. And some of it's rated R and X. I mean, it is credible. But he gets to Laban's house, and evidently deception runs in the family. Laban says, con man. He's out there, and he... And listen, Jacob, I won't go into this long, but it's a really interesting story. Jacob falls in love with one of Laban's daughters. It's a distant relative, but he's, they married back then. And so he says, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. Laban says, all right, I'll make you a deal. You work for me seven years and I'll let you marry. Now he's ready to get married. He's a, he's a man, he's ready to get married. He has to work seven more years. But get this, he works seven more years, hard labor out in the fields. Finally gets to the wedding day, she wears a veil over her head, that's what Jewish people did, and he realizes he's got the wrong woman. Yes, I know this is really strange, you can't imagine happening today, but he ends up consummating the marriage with the wrong girl. So now he's, he's gotta work another seven years. Laban is conning him out of things, but the point is this. God finally gets Jacob to the end of himself. He's beaten at his own game. And I just wonder that maybe, maybe, maybe this holiday, God might just do a special work in you. He may get you to the end of you or me. Let me just speak for me. Sometimes I need to get to the end of me until I finally have no more resources left and God says, bingo, thank you very much. Now you see me. I come in a manger, not a palace. You might miss me. The water might be a little more misty because of your fears. But if you get to the end of it, you realize I'm actually up to something. It's just different than you thought. By the way, David is another great example. Remember King David? The one that beat up on Goliath? The one that wrote Psalms in this best-selling book right here? Well, David became king. He had many wives and many concubines. He had more ladies than he needed. And one night he's walking around his rooftop and he sees a neighbor A neighbor's wife. She was beautiful. It was Uriah's wife named Bathsheba. And he wants her. And even though he's got many wives, did I point that out? Even though he's got many wives, he wants this one. And so he grabs her, and they have an affair. She reluctantly enters it. She knows she's married, but she does it And and David commits adultery. Well, then David starts this deception thing. He's trying to cover it up and trying to, you know, you know make it look like it's Uriah's baby. And Oh, my gosh. He, did, he does stuff he would have never predicted he'd do five years earlier. And God sends Nathan to him. Nathan comes over to his house, knocks on his door. He likes Nathan. Come on in. Nathan says, I just came to tell you a story. I love stories. Have a seat. And so they sit down, and Nathan tells him the story. He says, David, there was a rich man who had a huge flock of sheep. More sheep than he could count. And one day he was in the mood for a leg of lamb for dinner that night. And he looked over at his neighbor's house and his neighbor had one lamb. And he thought, ooh, I want that one. And he grabbed the one lamb, his neighbor, and he ate it for dinner. He said, David, what do you think ought to be done with that man? And David said, well, you ought to kill him. And Nathan said, David, this is a true story. It's you. And suddenly David, in a revelatory sort of way, has the light bulb go on. And he's thrown to his knees. But the point was, God has to send a Nathan. He has to send a Laban. He has to send somebody to beat you at your own game. Interesting, isn't it? We're just Sometimes we're just wingnut, foul-tip boneheads, aren't we? You can write that down. That's good. That's truth, okay? Now, in this pattern, let me tell you what I see. I'm going to tie a ribbon around this, and I'm going to go to some solutions here. I have found in my own life that fear leads to narcissism, and narcissism leads to more fear. You'll know what narcissism is, don't you? To, to be narcissistic means to be completely absorbed with myself. It's self-adoration, if you will, okay? People that love the mirror, all right? When I am fearful... I tend to start getting preoccupied. I want to make sure I keep everything I deserve and nobody gets in my way and I look out for number one and all those things that we talk about. When I'm narcissistic, I start to be a fearful person. But watch this. When I'm a fearful person, I just become even more self-absorbed. Self-absorption is on the rise today in America. You know that, don't you? The University of Michigan, not very far from here, has been doing a study in their sociology department. They tell us that college students today are 40% less empathetic, more narcissistic than just 10 years ago. It's on the rise, everywhere. And I think it's just because we think, well, gun it, nobody's gonna look out for me. I gotta look out for me. And God says, well, that may be true humanly, but I'm here, and I'm bigger than you. You can write that one down, too. So, so what do we do about all this? What do we do this with this tendency to be fearful and insecure and it leads to these silly things that we do and caught up in ourselves and missing Christmas for what it is? Well, I'm going to suggest that we can look at another set of leaders that were also in this story that are a contrast to Herod. Did it ever dawn on you that Herod was a leader who discovered the news and starts this trail of fear, but the Magi? were also leaders who responded very differently. In fact, you know what Magi are, don't you? They were actually leaders of leaders. The Magi were the leaders that the kings consulted for wisdom and science and astrology and medicine. I mean, they were the ones that really influenced the influencers. So the Magi could have been, they could have felt just as displaced, just as, oh my gosh, we're going to lose the Messiah? we got to kill him. But they didn't. In fact, they came ready to give, not take. They didn't want to wipe him out. They wanted to give him a platform. They follow the star. It's an incredibly different reaction. In fact, you don't need to write this down, but let's just look very quickly. I just want to give you words that describe how they responded to the news. They discover, just like Herod discovered, but they hope and they seek. They inquire and they listen. They pursue and they find. They celebrate and they give. And in the end... They gain insight and peace. There is no turmoil or disturbance ever once mentioned. Interesting. These magi had the same opportunity to see it the way Herod saw it, and they didn't. They came with a different perspective. Completely different perspective. And that first Christmas, they didn't miss it. Herod missed it. Herod could have been written up in a totally different way as the king during that time that paved the way and put up billboards and radio broadcasts about the Messiah. But he didn't. So so I want to ask an age-old question. I think the answer lies in answering this age-old question. You've all heard it at least 50 to 100 times in your life. You're going to hear it more. But you've heard it before. The question is, is this glass half full or half empty? You've all heard this question, right, before? Okay. And people have tried to answer, well, it's half empty or it's half full. It depends on society. You know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'll tell you what. I think I know the answer. I'm not really wise. I've been called a wise guy, but I'm not really wise. I think I know the answer to this question. Is the glass half full or half empty? Here's the answer. It all depends on whether you're filling it or emptying it. I said, it all depends on whether you're filling it or emptying it. You see, if you're filling the glass, if you're contributing, well, it's half full. You're on your way. It's going to be full soon. If you're consuming it, it's half empty. You're going to run out. In fact, it's on its way out. Hold on to what you got. It's a completely different frame. It's a mindset of scarcity rather than abundance. Now, I don't want to be trite here, but Herod, for Herod, is half empty. Because Herod was consumed with competing and comparing and consuming. He was a taker. The wise men, they weren't consuming. They were contributors. In fact, they were in adventure mode, not survival mode. And they're out there exploring and riding their camels for miles from modern-day Iran to modern-day Israel in Bethlehem. It's, that's an incredible ride. But they're coming to give and to, to celebrate. And, and so I guess I'm asking you right now, If we're going to beat this fear thing, especially in the holidays, are you willing to make the glass half full because you're a filler, you're a filler, not an emptier. I don't know about you, but I tend to be given to myself, left to myself and without this wonderful Bible, (laughs) a selfish, self-absorbed person. I think we come by it honestly. I think it's in our genes. It's called sin. But if we'll get in the right frame of mind, we can approach even this holiday season with a totally different mindset. It's not just enduring all the festivities, all these people and all this noise and all this clutter, all this wrapping paper. I can hardly wait till December 25th and January 1st are over. Get back to normal. So very quickly, one minute. What are your fears? Do you have any at all, even lingering in the back of your mind, as you enter holiday time? For some of you, holiday time is not a good memory. You don't have a good memory of it. You see all these other families celebrating wonderfully, and you go, wish that could be my family. For some of you, the fear is just being around all the people, period. For some of you, it's a little more tangible. Your fear is you know these people, and you know there's always conflict. When this one gets with that one, and who gets with that one? And you, you fear the conflict that's going to come up. You just know there's this awkward moment when somebody said something, and it's just weird, and now it's just off, and now it doesn't feel like Christmas anymore. For some of you ladies, it might be something simple like I don't know if they're gonna enjoy the food or I don't know if I got the right gifts. Oh my gosh, what if they return them? And for others of you, it's much larger. You fear, you fear what's coming after Christmas. You fear this next year, that you might lose your job or lose your something, whatever it is. But your fear keeps you from seeing Christmas and experiencing Christmas and all that God wants because you're so afraid of what's coming next year. I don't know what it is. But I know, humanly speaking, we have a tendency to do what Herod did, even with our tiny fears. And the glass of water fogs four city blocks, and we can't see very well. And God's saying, hello, hello, I'm here, and we can't see him. We're so caught up in us and our empty, or at least half-empty glass. I'd like to put your finger, I'd like you to put your finger on that fear, and in just a minute, we're going to pray and I want us to just allow God to do whatever he needs to do and wants to do, not only at Christmas, but to start a whole new journey for you that's fear-free. Let me, here's how I want to close. There's a great, great Christmas story that's been told for years, but I don't think I've told you for many years. Um, a church, not unlike Northridge, was putting on a Christmas play, and lots of kids were going to have parts in this Christmas play. And one girl, we're going to call her Chelsea, wanted the key. She not only wanted to be in the play, she wanted to have the major role of playing Mary. She wanted to be the star, the spotlight, the cute boy that played Joseph. Everything was looking really good. So she auditions, as did dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of other kids. Well, at the end of the auditions, not only did Chelsea not get the part of Mary, the starring role, she didn't get any part. The director very gently and graciously said, Chelsea, you've been in so many plays in the past. We have some new kids here. I thought you would understand. Could you help me backstage? Backstage? I don't want to work backstage. Well, just, I need someone. I need someone like you that's responsible. Can you be our prop person backstage and just bring out the props as we need them in the show? You know, the palm tree and the sheep and the doll and the manger and all that stuff. Could you just be my prop person? Well, Chelsea very reluctantly agrees to be the prop person. But if you know kids, you know it wasn't going well backstage. She was sulking, she was mad, feelings were hurt. She was lost in herself. And so she managed to get the palm tree out. It wobbled, but she got it out. But. On the queue where the spotlight was on stage right and the wise men were coming in and the spotlight was down center stage, she was supposed to tiptoe out in her black outfit, lie the doll baby in the manger that would play the part of Jesus and then tiptoe out inconspicuously and not be noticed. Well, the spotlight comes up and Chelsea has failed to bring the baby out. It's an empty manger. Well, you hear some gasps in the audience, and then you hear some chuckles from the kids that realize, this is wrong, this is wrong, you know? And Chelsea ends up being in the spotlight, but in every way she did not want. She has to walk out there. She's not supposed to be out there. She lies the baby in the manger, and then she kind of tiptoes out, wishing, you know, don't mind the man behind the curtain, you know, that sort of thing. Well, the show ends up finishing, and the director hands a wonderful, beautiful rose to all the actors and bids them farewell, and she waited to give Chelsea her rose until the very end. Chelsea did not want an encounter with his director. Even though she was full of grace, she knew they were gonna have a little showdown, little, little come to Jesus meeting <laughs> afterwards. Well, the director very gently said, before I hand you your rose, Chelsea, I just have a couple of questions I wanna ask you. Chelsea said, what? She said, well, I just wanna know what happened? Why why didn't you bring the the doll out for the manger? Well, Chelsea tries to hide behind, well I was busy or I forgot. The director said you weren't busy and you didn't forget. Keep going. And she finally nudges her emotionally until finally this girl is willing to admit, I guess I was caught up in myself. And then the director said, "Ah, and what happened when you get caught up in yourself?" I forgot to take the doll out. Well, wait, 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 wait. Who did the doll represent? And finally she got it. I guess, I guess I left out Jesus, didn't I? Bingo. And adults, I know this is a children's story, but hear me please. Do we not have the same problem? We get so caught up in all the stuff about us. And God's saying, hello. And we leave him out. And we get through another season. And he was something on a poster or maybe in a production here. But that's it. So I want to pray. First of all, I want to pray for all of you that God somehow uses this simple, simple talk to be a reminder for you this season and that you're able to put your finger on what it is that might block you from seeing and encountering Him. But secondly, we have people who come every weekend that that maybe have come to church for the first time in a long time or maybe you've never been in church or maybe... Maybe you've been in church a long time, but you've never, you've never stepped over that line of faith and said, I want to personally invite Jesus into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I want to pray for you. What a great time this would be, this holiday season, the birth of Jesus, to seal that deal and just say, God, I want to know that I belong to you. I want to know if I died today, I would go to heaven. If that's you, in just a minute, after my first prayer, I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we just stop right now and at the end we just say, please open our eyes. We know we're much more valuable when our eyes are open. Help us, God, to put our finger on those things that would prevent us from experiencing you, from seeing you at work, from encountering you afresh this Christmas. Lord, help us to see what our fears are that prevent us from seeing you. Bring this back to our remembrance, even on December 25th, as we celebrate. Now, with your heads bowed, I want to pray for those of you here today that would love to maybe take that step and invite Christ into your life. Um, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, phrase by phrase. And there's nothing magical about the words, but if they express the heart desire that you have, just even in your own words, just say this after me and just invite him in, okay? Let's do it. Dear God, I do want to know you personally. God, thank you for sending Jesus to the cross to die for my sin. Lord, thank you for forgiving me of all of my sin. Now, Lord, come into my life to be my personal Savior and Lord. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. And now, God, build me into the kind of person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, I promise you, best decision you will ever make. Congratulations. In your program, there's one more thing I'd like you to do. In your program, if you open it up, there's a little flap on the right side that you can tear off. Notice I don't have one. I'm just pretending like I do. Um, if you tear that flap off, there's a little box at the very bottom we'd love you to check that simply says, today, I pray to receive Jesus Christ in my life for the first time. And if you'll just quickly fill that out, tear it off. On your way out, there's boxes next to each of the doors. If you would just pop it in one of those boxes, we'd love to follow up and help you get started, send you some things, help you get started in your relationship with God. Folks, thanks for hanging out with me. I love you very much. I'll see you next weekend. God bless. Love that vibration, syncopation of a one horse open slave